When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljbar. What's up, Danny? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual, except this is take five or six. I don't I don't even know. <laughs> so I think we're going to skip banter today, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we're going to skip banter because we've already delivered essentially an entire podcast of, with how many times we've had technical issues where we've just had to start over again. So we're going to get into it right away. Um, Russian Revolution, right? That was nuts. So crazy. Wasn't it crazy? It was just like, <laughs> who would have thought the Russian Revolution would have happened? I don't know. It was like, you know, those guys were crazy. What's his name? Lenin? And yeah. um, um, something with a T, with an R, uh, Trotsko. 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 <laughs> Lenin and Trotsko. And then the, the, you know, the guy with the mustache guy with the family that the, the, the Disney cartoon was based off of. I think it was Disney, mm-hmm. right? No, I think it was their rival. Um, okay. Obviously, it's going to be more in depth than, than that. And so far, we've stood the test of two minutes or almost two minutes where we ha- haven't had an internet or technical issue. So I think this is going to continue. I have a good feeling about this. Yep. So, um, yeah, we're going to jump right into this. We've been doing a themed podcast a lot on the 20th century, 20th century politics, really, including the Russian Revolution, World War II, World War One, Interwar period. The interwar period. And really what the goal is, I mean... I don't really know what the goal is yet, but to find some type of knowledge. And um, we started talking about the Russian Revolution really, you know, a while back, almost about a year ago. And um, wanted to follow up on that. And by no means you need to listen to that episode to understand what's going on in this episode. However, it would be useful. So you can always listen to it afterwards because we're going to be talking about different periods. But um, today... When we last spoke about the Russian Empire, what we were really speaking about were a lot of the systemic problems that the Russian Empire was having. In short, throughout the last half of the 19th century, Russia's economy was developing slowly, slowly compared to other European countries. It had a huge population of serfs who had been liberated in 1861. However, most of these people lived in complete poverty, even after serfdom. And these peasants were not really included in the naturalization process that was taking place in Russia. Um, Really, Russian peasantry was a world upon itself. Now, at the same time, you have this radical intelligentsia class that was attempting to mobilize the peasant population 
into undertaking some sort of revolutionary change. And these movements were largely unsuccessful. But despite this, many of these groups were still violent. So in the late 1800s in Russia, you know, it was a time of, you know, limited anarchy. It wasn't like, you know, after 1905, but it was a time of, of, um, you know, of, uh, of chaos, really, or maybe limited chaos. Um, but this is really the period that Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky was writing about, you know, in his books, uh, The Possessed. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a critique of these nihilist and populist movements. Um, and these nihilist and populist movements at the time, you know, essentially they're declaring war on the current regime, which is the czarist regime. And these were not the Bolsheviks. Uh, this is before them. But these groups lay the groundwork for, you know, what Russian Marxism evolves into. And um, it really takes a different character than the rest of Europe. In, in one sense, you know, these groups in this, in this movement is a lot more resentful and, and bitter and, and, even, and even hateful. Um, and it, it takes this kind of violent character. Now, pulling this back, and we spoke about this in, in prior, um, in 1879, there is this terror organization called the People's Will. And the People's Will, they assassinate Tsar Alexander II. And this event, it... It's really the first major tipping point that foreshadows the revolution of 1917. Now, today I want to have another conversation about the fall of the Russian Empire. It's sort of this follow-up to the origins of the Russian Empire. I think we're going to concentrate more on you know, what becomes the Bolsheviks and what leads up to that. But we're also going to talk about the Russian state and things like that and, and you know, its, its character. Um, so this can, like I said earlier, can absolutely be a standalone. Um, and then maybe some shocks to the system that, that kind of put these, uh, you know, kind of move these events forward. But if I were to start an HBO show about the Russian revolution, even though I think there was, there, there's an HBO series or Netflix series on Trotsky, which I heard was pretty good. Was there? Yeah, I heard it was pretty good. Um, hmm. And I haven't seen it yet. I, I should give it a, I should watch it. I'm gonna Google that right now. I think it's based. It's it's Russian. I think it's a Russian show. So who knows if there's like sanctions on it or something, or it's in Russian at the very least. Yeah, there's a Trotsky miniseries from 2017. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, that's the one. I, is it on Netflix? It's on Netflix. Yeah, so that's the one. I'm not sure if it was produced in Russia or what, or if there's some sanctions on it. Um, there's still Russian video games that come out. So I don't know who knows. I'm not following the sanctions on media. Um, but here's where I would start the, this, this story in my, in my version. So it's May 5th, 1887. We're in a Russian courtroom and on trial as a 21 year old kid. And you know, he's a, he has bad acne and he kind of has a baby face, but he has this kind of stern, serious face with like this classic, uh, you know, the Slavic stare. Mm-hmm. Now, this young man is on trial for attempted czarcide. 
and Czar's side is obviously, you know, the murder of a czar. Right. His crew called themselves the terrorist section of the people's will. And this was the group, the people's will was the group responsible for killing Tsar Alexander III's father, Alexander II, just six years earlier. And this group is all, you know, basically noobs. Um, they're, um, you know, they have no experience in terrorism. There's no, they have no experience making bombs. They're, they're mostly like teenagers. You know, they're, they're, they're wannabes. They don't have the skill set to pull off a successful insurgency. Um, I'll take this from the, from, from uh, Helen Rappaport in the book Conspirator, London in Exile. As conspirators, they were inept, to say the least. It was only their youth. The youngest was only 20, and their bungling incompetence that had saved St. Petersburg from yet another outrage. A spot check on two of the conspirators by suspicious police agents had uncovered the crude bomb filled with bullets dipped into the stitching that was being carried by one of them inside a copy of Grinberg's Dictionary of Medical Terminology. So there was a plan to follow Alexander III, as he went to church, on the on the he was going to church to commemorate the anniversary of his father's death, and the plan was really just to go up and start chucking bombs at him. That was the plan. Just start, you know, as he's walking out of the church, just start throwing bombs at him. And um, the Okrana, the Tsar's secret police, they had already infiltrated this group and arrested all of them. So. The young man who's on trial was the bomb maker and really the chief ideologue. And in this young man's possession, the police found a manifesto reading, the spirit of the Russian land lives and the truth is not extinguished in the hearts of her sons. On 1887, Tsar Alexander III was executed. Hmm. So it's his manifesto. You know, basically it's like... um. It's equivalent to when, you know, you get like, congratulations, you know, Eagles Super Bowl winners. <laughs> you know, um, it's it, like, well, it you know, he was so excited that he thought that was going to be reality. And he, you know, pre-wrote his manifesto right. um, with the assumption that they were successful in assassinating Alexander III. The hubris now, on this guy. The hubris. <laughs> so the kid was, I mean, this kid was a real radical. Um, you know, the czar, in all of his mercy, allowed this kid's mother to visit him. And, you know, this, you know, when his mom visits him, this young man tells her that, you know, he was sorry for the suffering that he had caused her, but his first allegiance was always to the revolutionary movement. So in a show of extreme self-righteousness, this young man, he refuses to be represented by counsel, by a lawyer. And then he gets up and he says this to the court. Terror is the only form of defense by which a minority strong, only in the spiritual strength and a consciousness of its righteousness can combat the physical power of the majority. Among the Russian people, there will always be found many people who are so devoted to their ideas and who feel so bitterly and, and bitterly the unhappiness of their country that will 
that it will not be a sacrifice for them to offer their lives. My purpose was to aid in the liberation of the unhappy Russian people under a system which permits no freedom of expression and crushes every attempt to work for their welfare and enlightenment by legal means. The only instrument that remains is terror. We cannot fight in this regime in open battle because it is too firmly entrenched in, in and commands the enormous powers of repression. Therefore, any individual sensitive to injustice must resort to terror. Terror is our answer to the violence of the state. It is the only way to force a despotic regime to grant political freedom to the people. There is no death more honorable than the death for the common good. End quote. Just so no one takes that out of context. Whoa. You never, I, you never know. Yeah, right. Henry said the only way to get anything done is through terrorism. You know, this is this is interesting. Uh, that's that's a fascinating quote, dude. Because uh, especially because you know we're coming up on the God knows which anniversary of nine eleven, uh, and you know the the word terror and terrorism is kind of fresh in everybody's mind, and it's 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 fascinating to get a glimpse into you know how the folks who who have these radical ideologies who you know like kind of psychologize them and, and figure out how it is it that they come to the conclusion that this is this is a good idea and this young man that you're talking about he's basically just saying like hey this is literally the the only thing that we can do to quote again terror is the only form of defense by which a min- minority strong only in its spiritual strength and the consciousness of its righteousness can combat the physical power of the majority He's he's got a complex, man. He's he's uh he's got a bit of a screw loose, but I mean, kind of hard to argue with him, though. You know, in, in a certain sense. So I think what this represents is the really kind of the revolutionary spirit of of you know many of the people who are involved in the in the later Marxist Bolshevik movements and the populist movements because like him, he was executed. There was tremendous cost to this as well. Um, not just in Russian, Russian Marxist, or, um, but I mean, he wasn't even really a Marxist. He was just kind of a populist nihilist, but let's just say extremist or revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. There's usually a tremendous cost to it, right. meaning that um, you're either going to be thrown in a dungeon or jail or, you know, sentenced to death or even assassinated. So... The other important point about this is that this was this man was named Alexander Yulianov, and for those who are familiar with uh, Vladimir Yulianov, will know that this is his brother, Vladimir Lenin's brother. So this was Vlad- Vladimir Lenin's older brother, and hmm. um, you know the assassination of him played a significant role at least according to biographers on, you know, Lenin's life trajectory. Um, and, Do, you know, it's... So, so that's interesting. I didn't actually know that Vladimir Lenin's real name, real last name was Ulyanov. Are we going to talk about that or do you know? Yeah, Ulyanov. Why? Lenin was a code name, basically. You know, Ulyanov uh-huh. is his real name. I didn't know um, that. But yeah, that comes, that comes later. But the Ulyanov family, you know, there was a, there were, I'll get deeper into Lenin's personal life, but okay. first pull this. Let's pull this back. In the 1870s and early 1880s, 
Russia was in a phase of what you can call intense political friction between the state and radical student movements and more threatening radical student movements that would resort to terror. So, <laughs> you know, it was, you know, the time of Dostoevsky, um, you know, just read fire, uh, not fires in the hearts of men, but um, um, that's a quote from the book, but fires, uh, the possessed or devils, there's, there's, you know, the quote, you know, the, the house isn't on fire. Um, the, the, the house isn't on fire. The fire is in the minds of men. Mm. That's where, you know, that's what he's writing about this period of time. Um, but I'll quote from another historian, Victor Serge, in the book Year One of the Revolution. Between 1872 and 1882, there were six attempted assassinations, three of these successful against high officials, four against police chiefs, four against Alexander II, nine executions of informers, and 24 cases of armed resistance to the police. 31 revolutionaries. As, sorry. That's about as many uh, uh, execution uh, assassination attempts as we've had attempts on trying to make this uh, <laughs> podcast, I think. Yeah, for real. <laughs> we've, had, we've had six times. Well, at least the other times. We didn't get this far into it. But, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, sorry. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just No, that's that really fine. Funny. Alexander II <laughs> is, is uh, the father. He was assassinated. We, we spoke about this, his assassination at length in, in our last um, episode uh, covering this. And it was really a bizarre plot. I would recommend it just for that, you know, final 20 minutes where we discussed about, discussed that. But, um, yeah, I, he, I mean, it was like almost guaranteed that he was going to get killed by the amount of times that revolutionaries went after him. Cause um, he didn't, he never stepped up his, his, uh, yeah, security. he just never, they, they never stepped up their security. They were just like, all right, whatever. Um, <laughs> side note, <laughs> continue but, with your quote. <laughs> but, um, all right. So 31 revolutionaries were hanged or shot on, on April 14th, 1879, the student Solyanov fired five pistol shots at Alexander II. On first December, this, on December 1st, the same year, an explosion derailed the imperial train not far from Moscow. On February 17th, 1880, the dining room in the Winter Palace exploded seconds before the imperial family was due to enter it. On March 1st, 1881, Alexander II at last met his death in St. Petersburg, mangled by bombs. His five executionaries uh, were all hanged. With these casualties, the party lost its finest leaders, some of them the finest revolutionary, revolutionary personalities known to history. At his accession, the new Tsar Alexander III proclaims the autocracy to be unshakable. The establishment of the Okhrana follows a political p- police force armed with extensive powers and funds. A press law lays down preventive censorship for journals, suspected by the authorities they can even be suppressed hmm. so i want to talk about the this is really a fascinating group and there's not that much literature on them i was really looking hard for for more stuff on on this and they're really they're really maybe there's some more stuff in russian but um the okrana which are so or okana or okrana i think it's pronounced more okrana um they're ba- they're the russia's secret police force so Russia has this really long history of having a secret police. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a secret police even before the Okhrana. But the Okhrana is like the first major, like, secret police force that, that uh, in, in the Russian Empire. And really the most sophisticated police force in the world. 
um, mm. at, at the time. Um, but kind of laying, laying down that groundwork for the KGB, huh? Yeah, they have a lot in common. They have more in common with like the FBI, really. Okay, uh, fair enough. Russia's, the Russian Empire's version of the FBI. So, um, but the previous, the previous um, police was called the Third Section, which was created to combat you know some of the revolutions that took place you know in the in the early part of the eighth nineteenth century, but. These organizations only really had the ability to target individuals. By the 1880s, the regime is dealing with really professional revolutionary organizations. So, you know, the old secret police, they were, you know, catch that lone wolf type thing or, you know, those couple of army officers that are going to be mutineers. Um, you know, in a sense, you know, this this whole thing with... Um, um, with Wagner boss is kind of a long line of mutinies, military mutinies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Prigozhin. I don't know. Prigozhin slipped my mind for a second. I don't know why. But so amidst the renewals of assassinations, a new department of state police was created after really the, the assassination of Alexander II. And it began only as this small ad hoc group of special security sections of the police. However, it would soon turn into an extremely efficient secret police force. And it, you know, basically what it did is it monitored and repre- repressed political opponents, opponents um, and revolutionaries. Um, and they used secret police and secret informants. So a lot like how the FBI operates today. And, you know, they would hire prisoners to be double agents so they used agents uh, you know like agent provocateurs to infiltrate and disrupt revolutionary organizations you know they also created fake revolutionary groups as a whole to discredit you know the 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 genuine revolutionary movements and you know they did things like they would use torture and you know they would exile people Um, they even had like these really large um, you know, um, kind of foreign agencies. So they had their foreign bureaus in like Paris, for example, that would, you know, go after Russian populists who were in exile or who were, um, you know, trying to form groups, you know, kind of like these expat abroad. groups abroad. Mm-hmm. So they had, they had offices all over the world or really all over Europe. But I think most significantly, you know, they were in Paris. Um, and, you know, here's a really good book on, like, the, the the rise of revolutionary movements throughout, you know, Europe is uh, by James Billington. And it's called Fire in the Minds of Men, you know, right from the Dostoevsky quote. I'll quote from him. The continued sparring between the police and revolutionaries took place in a twilight world of tacit understandings, personal alliances, and even mutual admiration Close combat sometimes led to secret embrace. Names that were introduced on the right later reappeared in the vocabulary of the left. The extraordinary measures of the late Tsar's police prepared the way for the extraordinary commission of the early Soviet era. They had something called the Black Cabinet, which basically held files of all the revolutionaries in Europe. And a typical file entry on a revolutionary recorded 
basically all of that person's human relationships on radial lines leading out to different circles. So, you know, there was there was red for terrorist links, green for political friends, yellow for relatives, and brown for peoples known to deal with these revolutionary contacts. And then there were other sets of cards that used different colors to distinguish among revolutionary affiliations. So, um, you know, red was for social uh, revel, uh, for, for SRs, blue for social Democrats, yellow for student organizations, um, you know, white for professional associations, green for anarchists. Um, and, you know, there were between two and three million of these cards by 1900. So this, this counter-revolutionary police in many ways becomes, you know, a mirror image of the revolutionaries themselves. They adapted or adopted uh, pseudonyms of their own, of their of their own, including distinctions between like elders and and the young, which you know the revolutionaries of the 1880s were u- using. Mm-hmm. You know they enlisted their own family, like those of the revolutionaries, to host and you know keep watch over things like safe safe houses and you know arrange secret meetings and you know relay secret messages and things like that. Um, and then they, you know, they, they classify their agents according to the type of revolutionary each was dealing with. And the way that they divided them was, you know, terrorist agents, propagandist agents, and then typographist agents. What's and a I'll typographist quote, agent? Well, well, let me quote James All Billington. Right. But seduction worked both ways. It proved difficult to involve oneself with the left without entering into its ideals and aspirations. Their development, therefore, in the late imperial period, a, a twilight world of uncertain allegiances and identities. However, much of the Okrana and the revolutionaries opposed one another in principle. They shared in practice a common sub, subculture of intrigue and animity and excitement. They were the dynamic forces in a static society, and it was easier to change sides than to leave this alluring world altogether. So you get this. And typographic agent. I thought it was a was a was a propagandist agent, but then there's two for each. I typed in Google typographics. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best. It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What do we get? I thought it was synonymous with propagandist agent, but, you know, that's what the book... I'm basically taking this from uh, James Billington because he wrote the most out of this about this. But I assume it's something to do with, with someone who's uh, uh, promulgating propaganda. 
like text propaganda yeah I like see. text like going through writing pamphlets and shit yeah all right but, we'll go with that <laughs> but they were a lot like you know how the the secret police of the was the secret police of like northern ireland or of uh I forget what they were called, but they used to, you know, do all these kind of crazy psyops with with the IRA. And then, um, you know, like the FBI, like if you look at any of these kind of right wing militias, there will be more federal agents than actual members, like real like bona fide members, like the, the people who try to kidnap the governor of Michigan. I think it was like seven out of like twelve of them were federal agents or something, something crazy <laughs> like crazy. that. Where it's crazy, it was the majority. I forget the exact number, but it was the the majority of the people in that kidnapping plot were federal agents or federal informants. So it's, you know, they, it's, this is kind of where that stems from in the in the in the context of the twentieth century is the, is the Okrana, and I wish there was more about them. Um, to, to read about because it's it's a really fascinating organization or, or secret police force. Um, you hear people say that they didn't do it. They they weren't hard enough, and that's exactly hmm. why the why the Russian Revolution happened. But um, I digress. Let's talk about the actual people that the Okrana were were hunting, because that's really the the point of this episode yep um and at its inception the okrana were were you know they were sniffing out the remaining people's will um you know these nihilist populist movements however in the 1890s with russia's modernization process they start to deal with professional marxist groups and just to pull this back for a moment to give you a bird's eye view in the 1890s Russia's going through a massive modernization process fueled by the state project of constructing railroads and connecting these regions that were far apart from each other. This was the era of Sergei Witt, that, um, you know, of Minister of Finance. Um, you know, this is, you know, between, you know, 1880 or in 1903 or so, um, you know, there was this massive economic expansion that was spearheaded by by you know railroad and you know heavy industrial industries um and then certain cities in russia were really experiencing large degrees of economic growth so moscow um the central regions of of european russia uh saint petersburg the baltic cities uh russian poland some of the areas along the dnepr river and then you know southern ural mountains uh, you know, ports such as Riga, which is modern-day Latvia and Odessa, you know, they become very wealthy at this time. And then there was these oil boom towns as well, um, you know, that were, you know, mainly in like Western Siberia and then on the Caspian Sea region. Uh, Baku, which is the, you know, which is in Azerbaijan, which, you know, is on the, you know, the west coast of the Caspian Sea. It's, it's a very wealthy city. To this mm-hmm. day, Baku is a very wealthy city. And it's it, it becomes this really wealthy city in this era, in the late 1890s, due to these oil booms. 
Um, and then these what, these cities that become wealthy, inevitably, inevitably, they become extremely westernized. So like other countries, and we spoke about this, I wasn't last episode or a couple episodes ago, the elite rich people, they spoke French. That was kind of like the language of the rich was the French language. Yep. Um, and this was common in places like Prussia and Poland as well. And um, they, you know, they had like Renaissance style palaces and, you know, the Italian architecture and, and, and you know, the, the, the cities were, were largely of a more Western character. I'll quote from historian Abraham Asher. The state participated directly in the nation's economy to an extent unequaled in any Western country. In 1899, the state bought almost two-thirds of all Russian metallurgical production. By the early 20th century, it controlled some 70% of the railways and owned vast tracts of land, numerous mines and oil fields, and extensive forests. The national budgets from 1903 to 1913 indicated that the government received more than 25% of its income from various holdings. Russia's economic progress progress in the 11 years of Vitt's tenure as Minister of Finance was, by every standard, remarkable. Railway trackages virtually doubled. Coal output in southern Russia jumped from 183 million poods in 1890 to 671 million in 1990. The state participated directly in the nation's economy to an extent unequaled in any Western country. In 1899, the state bought almost two-thirds of all Russia's metallurgical production. By the early 20th century, oh, I'm rereading the same quote. Duh. Stupid. You don't have to edit it out. You can expose me for being dumb. You got it. (laughs) I wrote down the same quote twice. Okay. Well, the point is. You don't need to hear this twice to understand the point I'm trying to make is that there was a massive, you know, uh, nationalization that was spearheaded by, you know, producing oil and railroad and and all that nice stuff that kind of makes a modern country. And parts of Russia were experiencing this wealth and other parts were not experiencing this wealth. Um. And this was like one of the reasons why the German Empire was was sort of freaked out by them at this at this period because everyone was forecasting like everyone in Europe throughout the world is forecasting that Russia would eventually surpass them in industrial and economic output, and it was one of the reasons why a lot of members of the German general staff wanted to go to war with them. They wanted to strangle the baby in the crib. So now on the flip side, the industrial boom gives birth to this large proletariat. Russia's industrial working class, it, it grew out of the peasantry. And I'm not an expert on, on the labor laws and how they compare to other industrialized economies at the time. But I do know that they were having many of the same problems as nations like Germany and Britain. Wages for unskilled workers were low. Factory conditions were often harsh. The you know the urban flop houses and public soup kitchens were crowded and cramped. Um, unlike German Germany, Russia did not have the same um, you know accident insurance or old age pensions, leaving most workers unprotected if an accident happened. And you know Germany's you know the the Germany of Otto von Bismarck was essentially you know they created a welfare state. Everyone 
kind of associates right wing and left wing with with kind of economics, but that's really not the case because um, calling Otto von Bismarck's Prussia or is you know left wing would be crazy. You know, it just wouldn't wouldn't make any sense to. Um, but I digress. At the same time, Russia had some advantages because you know there's like this large Orthodox community. There's a large network of charities that provided, uh, you know, medical care for the injured, and um, you know, Rus- the Russians actually had more regulations when it came to things like child labor, especially when it came, you know, compared to the British, who had you know like ten-year-old chimney sweeps. Uh, they also had a lot of holidays on the Orthodox calendar, which provided them with some, you know, worker relief as well. Whether these factors made conditions better on the margins versus other industrial economies, I don't really know the answer to that. But um, in the 1890s, a new European Marxist party had emerged in Russia, most notably the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, the RSDRP, which was formed in March 1989 as an affiliated national section of the Second Workingmen's International Association, a.k.a. the Second International, uh, an organization created to standardize the principles of of, uh, Marxism after Marx's death in 1883. Owing to the explicitly revolutionary nature of the RSDRP program, the party was immediately placed under O'Connor's surveillance. Unlike previous Marxist groups in Russia, this one was much better organized. The RSDRP was almost from its inception a party of exiles, and it was founded most notably by Vladimir Lenin, um, Julius Martov, and, and, and uh, Sergei Plechnikov. Now, Lenin's real name was Vladimir Ulyanov. Um, he was born in 1870 in Simbursk, which is a modest town on the Volga River in central Russia, to a middle-class family. Um, Lenin was, you know, a, a political code name for him. But he comes from a family that's kind of marked by the character of the intelligentsia. His father was a school inspector of, of humble origins who, who reached lower nobility. Um, kind of like when you see one of those... Um, Kids in Antifa get arrested, and, and you find out like their father is a, it's like a professor at Stanford or something. Um, but he comes from a, from a humble origin, um, and his father dies at an early age, and you know allegedly it's something that Lennon had blamed on being worked to death. The second event. Always oh, got really, excuses, huh? Yeah. <laughs> The second event that really shapes him is the, the, you know, obviously what we touched on in the beginning of this episode was the execution of his beloved and admired older brother. So in 1895, he was arrested and exiled to Siberia. And um, he marries a teacher and a fellow revolutionary um, while he's there. I forget her name. It's something super Russian sounding, so I couldn't remember it. But he has this relationship, and she's like a fellow revolutionary. Um, I don't, from what I've read, he's not, it's not really like, it's more of kind of like a partner, a political partnership rather than like a love relationship. But 
Whatever. I refuse to believe that. They smashed 100%. No, yeah, of course they did that, but I'm saying that, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it's juicier if we assume that. And, um, you know, Lennon used his Siberian exile productively. He produced his first major work, which is the development of capitalism in Russia. And right. um, you had, you know, read that. Yeah, I got some notes on that. Uh, so in, in, in that book, Lenin basically argues a few things. Um, one, that uh, Russia was on a unique path to capitalism, which was distinct from the experiences of Western European countries. Uh, he believed that capitalism in Russia was developing in a more kind of uneven and combined manner uh, with elements of like feudalism and pre-capitalism structures that were kind of going alongside capitalist development. Uh, Lenin also thought that um, it, he was emphasizing the central role of, of the peasantry, the Russian peasantry, in in the country's tra- transition to capitalism. And he argues that the peasantry, uh, which is a very large class of small-scale uh, agricultural producers, was becoming increasingly integrated into the market economy, and that that integration was driving capitalism uh, to develop in the countryside. So Lenin was critical of the Russian bourgeoisie, uh, who he thought was weak in lacking that, you know, kind of revolutionary je ne sais quoi. And he thought that the the bougie people were incapable of leading uh, like a genuine democratic revolution and that the working class or what we would call the proletariat had to step up and take the lead on that. And he argued that the imperialist expansion you know, uh, the capitalist expansion was just a natural consequence of capitalism and that it had a really big impact on the global political and economic landscape, which frankly isn't wrong. But the most important point that he has is that Lenin believed that uh, Russian working class in in alliance with the peasantry had that potential to lead a real socialist revolution. And he argued that the working class should not limit its struggle to you know, these very narrow economic issues, but should also kind of take up the broader demands of the peasantry and fight for political power and, and establish a socialist state. So that's, (laughs) that's that book in a, in a nutshell. (laughs) Well, another important part is that he, he does, he's critiquing, he's spending a, 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 you know, a good time critiquing like the previous mark, the previous populist thinkers because you know that's kind of like the catch-all phrase that you can use for everyone at this period populist revolutionary thinkers he's critiquing them um especially the romanticization of russian peasantry um you know we in the 18 you know 70s 1880s there was this really weird moment where all these the radical intelligentsia class, so all the students from the universities and all that, they they traveled to the countryside to try to like train the peasants on you know revolutionary change and and socialism and you know all these things that they found in mainly like France and Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, they try to educate them. And their goal was to to mobilize the peasantry to you know basically overthrow the government. And what happened was is that the peasants threw them out. They were like, right. "Get the hell out of here!" 
You're and, talking um, about your weird ass left wing bullshit. Yeah, and that's what Dostoevsky <laughs> yeah. used to write about was like, yeah. you know, who the hell, like, basically you have these like swindler university students, you know, professors, uh-huh. um, this type of ilk are going into these small towns and destroying them. They're kind of, they're poisoning people's minds. And Side note, I've got a really great pitch for a reality TV show. Take a what? bunch of these like super left wing, like college students from like these uh, uh, places and, and send them off to uh, places in the U.S., like rural areas and, and have them try to do the same thing and just like watch. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. That would make some good reality TV. Well, you know, what happens, you, you see a lot of like, like hardcore left-wing activists are not scared to go into like Idaho and start waving like a trans flag of course i mean it's but it's like more about rural rural people are built different and i think i think and this is related to like getting off the the reality tv pitch uh the the problem with these you know uh uh ideal ideologists ideologists these fucking russian kids right they were going to the rural areas trying to you know teach them how to do socialism and revolution the problem with them is that that they didn't consider the culture, the needs, and the you know um, priorities of their target audience, and that's why they got thrown out, right? I mean, if it, it, something like that, I mean, at the top of the show, we were talking about how you know the the rural areas, the peasantry, the you know the, the working class folks, they all have different. They're different, you know, the different set of priorities, and that that still remains true even till today, pretty much everywhere around the world, you know. And so I think that the, the issue that they ran into was just trying to trying to communicate something that did not translate well, you know, to their everyday life. Yeah. And a lot of these Russian peasants, most of them are illiterate. Most right. of them, if you show them some Marxist, it, it's kind of like that famous story of, of, um, of that guy who was in Afghanistan showing, you know, like Afghani uh, farmers in the middle of nowhere pictures of 9-11 mm-hmm. and they were looking at it and they had zero clue or idea of what they were looking at right like they like just down had to the absolutely, buildings they were like what is they that? were just <laughs> they'd have they'd absolutely zero clue of what they were looking at and then they find one of them and looks at it and he says what is that cobble yeah so not only does he not know about the event of 9-11 but he doesn't know he doesn't know what new york is period right exactly. he doesn't know he has he doesn't know does what to compute you know? Yeah, it just does not compute. And they don't, you know, some of them didn't know what an Arab was. Right. And they had to, and they had to communicate that um, a bunch of Arabs flew a plane into a village named New York. <laughs> a village. <laughs> a village named New York. So it, it, it was kind of like that where maybe these people weren't that backwater, but they were backwater compared to the people teaching them, and and again, it just I think didn't the, resonate. the important point is 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 not necessarily that they're backwater because that's kind of pejorative. It's more like the the values that they hold and the priorities that they have were just completely different. Where they're just not on the same like spectrum, you know, they're they're not vibing with the ideas that that these folks from these cities and and these universities are are you know peddling basically. Yeah, 
but also they can't even read it. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> like there's also just like how can you how they can't even even if they would be receptive to that to, kind of messaging, right. they can't read some pamphlet from France, right, <laughs> about socialism or about workers or about some type of you know revolutionary systemic change like they just can't right. they'd have to communicate it. it totally orally they can't and then, have it communicated and then yeah. they're just gonna be like what get get out you know like imagine going to some untacted amazon tribe and right. trying to you know explain socialism <laughs> yeah explain socialism to them <laughs> yeah so yeah it was it was a failure and often you know these these revolutionary would be um you know, if they were to be handed to the police. So Lenin said, okay, that was dumb. We shouldn't do that. If we need, if we're going to work with some groups, we need to focus on the labor unions and things like that, like the worker, basically. Mm -hmm. That the working class had to play the leading role in the revolution. And because, you know, people in the cities, they mainly, you know, there was just a level of, you know, a higher level of sophistication that you were kind of forced to know, even though the people in the cities and the working class, they did come from the peasantry themselves. So um, in the 19, in 1990, uh, 1900, 1990, in 1990, Lenin is um, exiled to, or no, he's not exiled. He's his his exile in Siberia ends, and then he he lives in um, a couple different cities throughout Europe, Munich, London, and then eventually he ends up in Switzerland. And while in London, Lenin starts to work for Iskra, and Iskra is the newspaper for the SDLP. And uh, the primary purpose of Iskra was to serve as a platform for Marxist revolutionary thought and, and ultimately unite various socialist factions under some under you know some type of common banner. Mm-hmm. And the newspaper would be smuggled into Russia, and from its inception, Iskra advocated the overthrow of the, of the uh, of overthrow of the. <laughs> Yeah, that. <laughs> it's a le- it's 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 late. It's late. It's late and I have a newborn baby. Give me some cut me some slack. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. From his inception... In, from his inception... <laughs> We're leaving this from in, the very by the way. beginning. <laughs> from the very beginning, Iskra advocated regime change in Russia. They there advocated for a change in government from the czar. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Hopefully that resonates. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed. Yeah. Just keep it simple. Don't use fancy words. They wanted the czar's regime to end. Want different government. Or advo- advocated <laughs> it, specifically advocated it. So imagine if a newspaper from like some conservative outlet was like, we advocate the you know revolutionary regime change of Joe Biden. Don't take that out of context. I'm using that as a hypothetical. Right. Um, it's probably true somewhere. <laughs> I, yeah, but some sort of, oh, got another one. Throw him in jail for 22 years. <laughs> um, but yeah, like... You know, those people would immediately be arrested. <laughs> like the, in America, that, they would be arrested for that. So, um, you know, they were, a, it was a radical newspaper. Now, the most important work that Lenin did, or maybe his most well known, was a pamphlet that he wrote. It was called What Is to Be Done. And it was a tribute to one of the, really leading populist of of um of the previous era's novel the same name what is to be done um we spoke about that in our last episode Mm -hmm. but um you you've read both of the what is to be done and his other pamphlet what were some of the main points of what is to be done all right more spark notes um okay so lenin essentially argues in what is to be done for the creation of a new type of party. And this was a vanguard party, a basically a highly disciplined and centralized political party that was made up of professional revolutionaries who would, you know, effectively lead the working class in the struggle for socialism, <laughs> whatever that means. Basically, he, he believed that the working class, again, you know, left to its own devices would tend to engage in these economic struggles rather than, than, you know, go out and make some revolutionary political action or change. So he emphasized the need for this, this type of a party to provide kind of that guidance, that, that political leadership for this, uh, uh, group of, of people for this working class. And this is really different from, you know, the elaborate and very bureaucratic and slow moving structure of the SDLP, 
Uh, instead, Lenin basically proposes a smaller, very dedicated kind of secret society of professional revolutionaries. And this elite would, you know, pull the reins a little bit and steer the the revolution and direct the working class. And, and according to Lenin, the, the working class on its own would develop, you know, only a trade union consciousness, right? So they, they'd, that would be the level that they would operate at, right? Just create a bunch of trade unions, um, and and that you know, would fighting for benefits and stuff like that. You know, right. like they, things you know, that, would, that matter to them, right? Yeah, things that let's fight for higher wages rather than mm-hmm. let's fight for you know completely overthrowing the system. They wanted the work and the parameters of the system, right? Exactly. Um, but and but, then. Yes, yeah, I mean they they wanted to do revolutionary. They wanted to to develop this kind of revolutionary consciousness, right? But kind of working behind the scenes and guiding that larger class, um, which would be just working on the basic grunt work, um, you know, the the trade union stuff, and and to to push this revolutionary cause, he believed that this party, this vanguard party, had to bring revolutionary political consciousness to the working class from the outside, right? Uh, and this was known as the, quote, revolutionary consciousness. It's it's pretty dense stuff, to be honest, right? A little hard to follow, um, but I think, you know, general general ideas, set up, set up a party, elite, small, fast-moving, use that party to politically direct the working class. They, they'd all start up naturally you know, focusing on the trade union things and, and the, you know, the smaller economic issues that matter to them, and then eventually start introducing more revolutionary ideas and concepts from the outside. Yeah. And, um, as the Russian labor force grew in size, they're springing up an increasing number of these worker organizations and trade unions. Marxist groups would would work with these groups to organize strikes and things like that, and it was you know it was called the concept of agitation. Right. I mean, they they basically created these Marxist cells to train revolutionaries. Yeah. So, in eighteen ninety eight, there was an attempt to weld these various cells, um, you know these these regional organizations and committees into a united revolutionary Marxist political party. And in that year, there took place the first Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, the RSDRP, forerunner of the later Communist Party of the Soviet Union. However, very little was actually achieved at the first Congress. There were only nine delegates. Yeah, not to mention that the uh, party leadership was arrested (laughs) soon after that and and sent to jail. That party, quote-unquote, it, it had no real organization. It just kind of like existed in name only. Yeah. And a second attempt was made to forge a, uni- a unified party in 1903, which in fact became the division of the RSDRP into two, its two major factions that we all you know, know as the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. And it was during this interval between the first and second Congress that really Lenin becomes this major player in the political party. Right. He, he, Lenin was called like the revisionist or, or, you know, he was against what he called revisionist theories uh, of the German social Democrat, uh, Edward Bernstein, 
who suggested that the the transition to socialism could be done without a workers' revolution. So he was basically totally against that. He's, he needed the workers, or at least that's what Lenin believed. And he attacks all the people who basically saw, you know, who he saw as just being too soft on this particular issue, who weren't willing to go that whole mile. And they were, in a sense, collaborating with the current system. So it's, he was like, you gotta, it's, it's all in or nothing for Lenin at this time. And just think about the tremendous sacrifice you have to make to be a revolution, a revolutionary. Most people don't want to do that. Like most people are just, you know, like we were saying earlier, most people just want to increase their wages or just right. increase, really ultimately increase the living, their living standards. Mm-hmm. Um, no one wants to disrupt the system so much that it becomes really hazy and foggy on the other side. Right. No one, really, no one wants to do that. I mean, not everybody wants to be Lenin's older brother and sacrifice them their whole life, like literally sacrifice their life and martyr themselves to to make revolutionary change. And when it comes down to it, most people just want to just want to keep plugging along, even if it's just under the worst possible conditions. And yeah, like, what happened? Like Rosa Luxemburg? Like, what happened to her? Like, her life was like incredibly tragic. Yeah. Um. A lot of their lives are incredibly tragic because, I mean, just think about like the concentration you have to, you really have to neglect your personal lives and your family and you have to commit it a hundred percent to this cause. And it, it's almost like, you know, becoming like a fundamentalist to a religion. Um, for sure. It's, 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 and the best, the best ones are the ones that don't have any family or any connections. Right. But, but. Yeah, and that's because it's it's an easier it's easier for them to take up the the mantle in that way, but it's a double edged sword because you know without those kind of family connections and and you know that human element it's it's hard for people to <laughs> you know to 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 identify with you, but as as it goes for Lenin you know he's he was so hard and hell bent on on his stand on party organization that. It basically leads to like a schism in in this brand new party at the Second Congress in 1903, um, which was held first in Brussels and then in London. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that schism because I think it's important. Um, one of the most important items on this Congress's agenda turned out to be the question of the criteria for party membership, like who gets to be part of the club. Um Lenin's uh, uh, friend, Julius uh, Martov, uh, proposed that um, party members must obviously first accept the party program, right? Like you, you got to be like cool with the with the agenda. And then second, support the party financially. Okay, now you got to put some skin in the game, get some money on the table. And then third, be prepared to work under the direction of one of the party's organizations. So, all right. You like what they're talking about. You're giving them some money. You're willing to put in some work. Those are the three, you know, criteria to be a part of the party. And Lenin mostly agreed with the first two principles, but objected to the third. He thought that a party member has to work, you know, in one of the party organizations. It was it was like a slight variation of wording, which is weird. Um, but what what might seem to be merely just kind of like a semantic, you know, argument, in fact, exposed 
two very different views as to what type of party there should be. So the first like reading of it um, basically created a, the idea of a broad party of sympathetic supporters that were prepared to, you know, just cooperate personally with party organizations. And the other one was a bit more narrow. This is the one that that um, Lenin uh, proposed, which, you know, is more of a, a like a disciplined party of like 100% fully committed activists. So to round this out, they were having a, a disagreement in the in the phrasing of the work. Like they both agreed that if you're part of the party, you should do you should put in the work to push the party forward. Um, where his or uh, Martov was trying to say is just like you are willing to cooperate, and it's a little bit more loosey goosey. And where Lenin's coming in is like, no, this has to be like your life. You have to do. You have to be fully committed to all of these uh, um, party activities. And, you know, Lenin was a bit of a hard ass and he lost that vote. Um, On the later item, though, um, which concerned the question of the party leadership and and centralization, he got a little bit of a win by a slight majority, um, mostly because there was abstentions from his opponents. uh, So they just didn't vote. And, um, you know, with, with this small lead Lenin promptly you know dubbed his supporters uh the majorityites <laughs> uh the the russian word for majority is bolshins bolshins shit bolshins <laughs> it's not important the yeah, name bolshevik bolshevik, yeah bolshevik comes from that word <laughs> i'm not i'm not a russian speaker sorry it's uh it's it's tricky it's all the consonants they put together Anyway, so his opponents, uh, uh, led by Martov, despite actually becoming the larger section of the, within the party, were called the minorities or the Mensheviki. So that's where the Mensheviks come from, right? Um, and that's where we get those two names and the divide there. So important point, narrow majority. And I mean narrow because literally people forgot to vote or abstained from voting. That's the Lenin party. That's the Bolsheviks and the Martovs were the minority, even though they technically had more people, uh, and they were called the Mensheviks. So for the moment, there were technically those two factions of the same party. And in spite of lots of attempts later to reunify all those parties, that split between the two parties, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, it that ended up being just permanent. Um, and with all this, it's I think it's a little premature to think of Bolshevism or maybe more narrowly Marxist Leninist theory as a coherent and like fully developed ideology because they were still working it out themselves. Yeah. And I think it's also a mistake to think that Lenin was even in complete control of the Bolsheviks. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he had great, you know, personal authority and, you know, kind of this unshakable belief in the correctness of his own positions. However, he was not the bona fide, you know, was, you can argue he wasn't the bona fide party leader yet in the full sense of the term. Um, in any case, apart from a brief spell when he returned to Russia in 1905, he spent the years before 1917 mostly abroad. And therefore, he was really cut off from the everyday organizational activity of party workers on the ground 
in Russian towns and factories. Right. However, despite its kind of incoherent nature, Bolshevision, 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 sounds like a television <laughs> electronics company. It's a, it's a shitty television that only shows yeah. you uh, yeah. it, it Marxist shows propaganda. You. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a great name for the Soviet flat screen. Look, this um, is a 42-inch flat screen uh, Bolshevision. Boris. <laughs> Pravda and liquor commercial. Vodka. <laughs> um, so, in ballet, too. Let's just throw the most. In hockey. That's four channel. Um, so, Another thing, though, is that this is, you know, definitely what you went over is definitely kind of like the most common narrative with when it comes to the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And, you know, it's it's, you know, it's strategy. But there's another theory. And, and I and I read this from um, from from Sean McMeekin, who's who's a historian on, on Russia, who wrote a lot of books on Russia and World War One. He wrote a lot. He wrote the the book that he's well known for right now is Stalin's War, which is you know I think is a bestseller, um, where he kind of writes the case that Stalin was going to invade Germany. But um, he wrote another book on the Russian Revolution, and it's it's kind of like more of the it 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 kind of cuts through a lot of narr- he tries to cut through a lot of common narratives. And he's by no means like an extreme. He's a professor at like University of Idaho, I think. He wrote in his book, and I'll just read his quote, but I, you know, I read some other things from other historians from the region um, on, on, on the Russian Revolution. But I'll quote, the foregrounding of the Jewish question Inevitably marked the history of the Russian social of, of, of Russian socialism. Contrary to, to the common belief expounded in most history books that the famous Bolshevik-Menshevik split of July 1903 occurred because of Lenin's advocacy of a, of a professional cadre of elites outlined in his 1902 pamphlets What Is to Be Done was oppressed by Mensheviks who wanted mass worker participation in the party. The real fireworks at the Brussels Congress surrounded the Jewish question. Party organization was not even discussed until the 14th plenary session. Lenin's main goal in Brussels Brussels was to defeat the Bund, that is, Jewish autonomy inside the party. His winning argument was that Jews were not really a nation, as they shared neither a common language nor a common national territory. Martov, the founder of the Bund, took great umbrage at this and walked out in protest to form the new Menshevik minority faction. He was followed by nearly all Jewish socialists, including notably Lev Bronstein, Who's, who's Trotsky, a um, young intellectual from Kurson in southern Ukraine who had studied at a German social German school in cosmopolitan Odessa, which helped prime him for the appeal of European Marxism. With Lenin all but marrowing the arguments of Russian anti-Semites, it is hard to see why Martov, Trotsky, and other Jews joined the opposition. Paradoxically, the merging of the Bund with the new Menshevik faction of the RSDRP through confirming for the Okrana agents the, the, the tautology that Russian Jews were socialist may actually 
have weakened the Jewish character of Russian Marxism now that Lenin's Gentile-led Bolshevik majority faction stood in pole position, even if it was confusingly much smaller in number than the Menshevik faction and the Bund. In effect, Lenin had rejected Jewish socialist internationalism, the cosmopolitan faith of such intellectuals as Trotsky, for Russia's native revolutionary tradition grafted its own ruthless version of populism onto Marxism. Bolshevism, like its founder, was Russian to the core. Hmm. So this is that kind of a um, there's that uh, I don't want to say racism, but like racial element to this that's kind of overlooked a little bit. So yeah, and and I read this. So the book he he quotes in the book uh, another historian named Harold Shuckman who who wrote books about the Russian Revolution. He wrote this paper about the Bund, and he, he actually goes through a lot of firsthand sources, and he, he kind of he builds the he, he really makes the court the the case that this was um this was kind of like a tribal um, kind of ethnic <laughs> breakup. Mm-hmm. between the Jews and non-Jews. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just something to consider, really. I'm not, again, an expert on any of these topics, but it's something that you're kind of forced to, to talk about because, you know, there were large numbers, a large percentage of the communists, or I guess a disproportionate amount of, of the socialists in Russia were Jews. So, um, I say we wrap this episode up because... The next thing to talk about, we can we can take this in two different directions. One of the where I wanted to kind of end this though was that or or, or possible places that we could lead off. These these groups had zero power at the time in right. Russia. They're exiles, so they have zero power. They don't really start to gain traction until there is these massive shocks to the system, and those shocks happened in 1905. Most notable, the big one is really the Russo-Japanese War. When Russia has this humiliating defeat, it causes all sorts of social unrest in the country. Right. And that's when they're able to start capitalizing on that social unrest. But another thing I think we need to talk about is, you know, more, there's there's another character, and I think it's a, it definitely a controversial topic, but I think we should touch on it too, is more so with the Jewish Bund, which is a major faction in the Russian Revolution as well. So... Um, let's yeah, we, put a pin on it. Yeah, we can go over that. We can think about them. Mm-hmm. Let's put a pin on it and let's uh, reconvene. Sounds good. It is also super hot in here, so I can't. Also, this go is on like the longer. sixth time we've tried this, so I'm just happy we've gotten this far. <laughs> yeah, and it's summer. These summer episodes are usually deadly because brutal. it is yeah. at night. You got to turn the AC off because. Um, it gets hot or because it, they're loud and it interferes with the microphone. So um, let's end this. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bro History. Make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. And then you can also join us on Patreon if you want to support us there. Uh, Danny, anything else? Nope. Uh, actually, right. one thing, uh, we've been pumping out a lot of stuff on YouTube and I'm really enjoying uh, respond, reading and responding to some of the comments that are left on the uh, on those videos. So, like uh, one thing that uh, I've always lamented about uh, getting ratings and reviews on our 
iTunes and Spotify is that we can't say shit back. <laughs> so we can't engage with these. So that's a really great way if you want to just chat. Um, you know, a lot of the times some of you guys are, are bringing up some theories that we didn't cover and, you know, showing us some, some cool stuff. So if you want to engage with us directly, that's a really great way to do it too. All right. Peace, guys. Peace. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.